Good morning. Welcome to CPC. My name is Jefferson Bennett, and uh, it's a joy for me to be bringing you God's Word this morning. And so, I wonder if you've heard this phrase. Surely you have. I heard it a lot growing up through the, the years. The phrase was, to walk by what? Faith. And not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. Which, when I was a kid growing up, could mean a whole host of things, right? Uh, things like, um, well, just kind of hope for the best. Or uh, think positively when things get hard. And that somehow this would help you overcome your challenges. But the phrase actually finds its inception, its beginning with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. And it centers around kind of what he uh, meant when he used the word faith, what Christ meant when he used the word faith, what the Bible means when it talks about faith. But what is faith? I mean, true faith. And how do you walk by it instead of by sight? Especially when things around you look rather grim and challenging and uncertain. How do you do that? So this morning, it's my hope that we will find out the answer to this question. But first, why don't we pray together? Oh Lord, may the meditation in my heart the words of my mouth and the thoughts in my heart to be pleasing to you, O God. Our rock, our redeemer this morning and forever. Amen. So our text this morning comes from the book of Habakkuk. And um, you may not be familiar with Habakkuk. I wasn't familiar with Habakkuk before I went to seminary. And uh, we had to study every book in the Bible in detail. And, uh, and before, I had just sort of read through it real quickly and hadn't really thought about it much. But Habakkuk is found in a book of 12 minor books, minor prophets. Uh, and they are called minor prophets because of their length, not because of their content. So. Uh, it's not like you get lighter material in the Minor Prophets. It's, uh, it's actually the opposite. You get pretty heavy material uh, just in a very short amount of time. So it kind of feels like you get punched in the stomach uh, and then you're left there to think about it. The Minor Prophets came at a time prior to and even during this uh, serious turmoil in redemptive history for God's people. And that was exile a.k.a. national domination. Think your house burnt to the ground. Think friends and family either killed or sold off to a foreign land where they would be stripped of their ethnic identity. Exile. I told you, it's not light material. And um, our prophet this morning, Habakkuk, is riding around the 600s B.C., early 600s, and so... He's in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the context is this. About 100 years ago, God had already sent the northern kingdom, Israel, into exile into the hands of the Assyrians because of their sin, because of their cycles and their rebellion and their evil. Now, a little over 100 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, which had only a slightly better record, honestly, 
than the northern kingdom. Now it's their turn, and they are being uh, threatened with this exile at the hands of the Babylonians. What would cause God to send his people into exile? What kind of sin could have been that bad, you might ask? Well, the types of things that were happening in Judah were things like 2 Kings 21 says, that King Manasseh, the king of the southern uh, kingdom of Judah, um, right before Habakkuk's time, a couple generations, he is said to have, quote, burned his son as an offering. This was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. Um, uh, rulers were thought to have thought that if they offered their children before their pagan gods um, and uh, killed them and sacrificed, that they would, the gods would act favorably on their behalf. But it was strictly forbidden by the living God, by the God of uh, Israel and Judah. And so these are the types of sins and others that had led the Lord to a place to say, it is time to deal with your sin, with your rebellion, with your uh, habitual um, fighting against my ways. And Habakkuk is beginning to see this, that's happening, right? He's beginning to see that the Babylonian army is getting very close <laughs> to their doorstep, and he's also recognizing that the people of his time are getting very, very uh, increasingly wicked, increasingly um, stubborn in their sin. And um, he goes to God. Now, what's uh, dissimilar in Habakkuk from the other minor prophets is, is that usually a prophet brings a word of the Lord to the people and says, here's what God says. But in Habakkuk, we actually see something different. We see Habakkuk not bringing a word from the Lord to the people. He brings his word from the people up to God, and we get this conversation between Habakkuk and God, really this complaint, Habakkuk to God, what is going on here? And so that's the context for our text this morning, and we'll read a little bit of that so that you can get a picture of what he was um, in the midst of. But I hope to show you three things this morning. If you take notes, write these down. I hope to show you that we are to walk by faith, which means God's discipline, his discipline, and we'll talk about that, is good and necessary. Walk by faith. I hope to show you also that we should not walk by sight, that God's kingdom is both invisible and yet it's priceless. And lastly, that true faith brings assurance in the midst of uncertainty. So, by faith, God's discipline is good and necessary. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, we don't like this word discipline. Uh, in fact, uh, when I use it around some of my um, extended family members, um, I get these like dirty looks. Uh, like I've said something wrong, or like I'm going to be, you know, this, you know, bad parent because I think disciplining my kids is uh, essential. Um, it sounds a bit harsh in our context, right? In our culture, it sounds a bit domineering. Um, but I would argue, and I want to say to you this morning, that without discipline, that at least in my house with my kiddos, uh, bad habits, small little seeds of bad habits, right, begin to get worse 
and worse and worse until you have a child screaming and throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of the store and there's like 100 people looking at you and you can't drag them out, right? Because they're that obstinate, they're that set in their ways. Not that that's happened to me, of course, but I mean, I've heard stories about it happening and uh, it, sounds, it sounds awful. But let's read a little bit of chapter one of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's really short, it's just three chapters. Let's read a bit of chapter one to help us get into the setting here, okay? So Habakkuk one, he opens by complaining to the Lord about the nation's bad habits. He says, oh Lord, how long? Which is prophet speak for what the heck? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? That is sin. Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the laws paralyze, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's looking around at the nation of Judah and going, there is some serious stuff happening here. Okay? Serious wrong, serious paralyzing of the law is what he says, so that justice can't go forth. And we said again that things like this King Manasseh had happened with his son in the offering, and, uh, and all these sins go on and on and on throughout Second um, Kings about what is happening in the nation that Habakkuk is in a rage over. So God answers Habakkuk in verse 5, and he says this, not really answering him, but sort of shifting his gaze. Well, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's another name for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded, they're fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, and their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, and all their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh, they laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So we get a picture of first Habakkuk being upset. But then it appears that the Lord's answer is that the Lord is more upset than Habakkuk. That God actually agrees, right? There is injustice happening both in Judah and outside of Judah. But unbeknownst to Habakkuk, the Lord is setting a plan in motion and has already set it in motion. He's sending these Babylonians, these Chaldeans, to discipline his precious chosen people, Judah. The ones that he had nursed from their infancy. Ever since in Genesis 15, he took Abraham out to the field, right? And he said, look at the stars in the sky. I will make your people, your family, so vast it'll outnumber the stars in the sky. And yet now he seems to be saying that this people of his will be crushed by its enemies and sent off into exile. 
It's sovereign decree. The sovereign decree of God is allowing for this evil to come upon Habakkuk and the people of Judah. So Habakkuk responds back to the Lord in verse 12. Well, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, for you have ordained them as a judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Verse 17, Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I'm going to look out and see what he, that is God, what will God say to me and what I will answer him concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is upset and confused at how God could send this evil nation to come and discipline his people. Right? We're just talking about our little small you know, sins here in our country, Lord. Like, you don't have to send this other nation that's worse than us, right? The one whose practices we are try- we've been trying to emulate, right? Their sin is far worse than ours. We don't need them to come and discipline us. Sure, we're not perfect, but at least we're better than they are, right? Have you ever found yourself saying that before? Not out loud, I know, but like up here in your head, you think, well, uh, at least I'm not bad as so-and-so. That's a really dangerous thing to say because we forget how quick and how bad our own sin is before the Lord, who is holy and who is good. Habakkuk had forgotten that God had said this all before. 2 Kings 23, after uh, King Manasseh had passed and King Josiah had come and had set all these reforms in place, had done all this good work and restore Israel to try and call Judah back to the Lord, God still says this. 23, 26, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because all the provocations which, with which Manasseh, that king, who did nothing but evil, had provoked God. The Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I removed Israel to the Assyrians, and I'll cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem. It's as if God can't let go of what Manasseh had done. It's like he can't turn a blind eye to injustice, to evil, to murder. He just can't do it. He is holy. He is good. He is just. His people had sinned, and justice was due. It was overdue, and the Babylonians are coming, and they will discipline God's people. I know here in the Western world, we've had this tendency to kind of domesticate God, you know, sort of paint God as a, you know, um, easygoing, um, passive, kind of Santa Claus type figure. But we forget that sin is serious all the time and that God is also holy all the time. And he will discipline his children in order to save them from their sin. 
in order to deliver them from their bad habits and their cycles of wrongdoing. Back to Habakkuk in chapter 2. Um, God, God answers the prophet and tells him what else is going to happen. And this was our text read this morning, Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. The Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. By his faith. This vision is to be written down and preserved for the whole nation because in a few years' time, this is going to take place. What God is doing is not going to happen a minute earlier or a minute later. Right? He says it's coming at the appointed time. And just when you think that the worst is coming, right, you see this sort of building, right? It's, it's coming, it's coming at the point of time, this exile, this judgment, this um, punishment, this discipline is coming. You're expecting sort of building and building and building for God to sort of say, and that's what you deserve, and, and there you go, and that's it, right? You sort of expect this, like, this moment where he's going to say, and I'm done with you, and that'll be it. But not our God. Our God says, no, it's at this point that there's still a hope for those who would trust me, who would walk with me, who would seek me, and would still be saved, would still find life, would still be preserved. That's the kind of God that we worship, that we follow. A God who says, even still, there is hope, right? The righteous shall live by his faith. And that is the ray of hope in Habakkuk. That is the first point in the book, in the conversation where God opens the way for good news. And it seems that God's discipline has a bigger purpose than simply just punishing Judah for its sin. When Andrea and I were new parents, um, we were really struggling to figure out uh, how to do this whole discipline thing. Our parents were, um, you know, tried their best, but uh, there were some inconsistencies. And sometimes, you know, you'd get away with a whole bunch and you'd think like mom and dad are totally cool with everything. And then out, out of nowhere, like a moment of like crazy psychoness, you know, it's like, uh, and now you're getting spanked or now you're getting, you know, time out or now you're getting a toy taken away. And you're like, what? We've just been like, we've had a whole weekend of fun and we're just chilling. Like, what's going on here, you know? And... And so, and so navigating, right, how to be consistent and how to be loving and patient, but how to be still firm with our kids was something that we really struggled with. And um, we uh, picked up a book that someone recommended to us uh, called Shepherding a Child's Heart um, by something, Trip. It's not Paul, it's his uh, Don Trip. I mean. um, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Heather, you know what it's called? Yeah, yeah, Donald Trip. We, we read this book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Lasting impact, obviously. Uh, remember this this author so well. Um, but uh, you know, Andrea's like combing through, taking notes on, like every page, and uh, and I'm like skimming the you know table of contents. I'm in seminary. I'm like I really can't read a whole bunch of this stuff. I got other things to read, you know. So I'm like finding the chapter that I feel like is really ethical. I go there and I read this thing, and he says, "This is um, a way to help 
explain to your children what's happening. And so he said this. He said, imagine a circle. And so this is what I do with my children. And my kiddos, my three-year-old, my six-year-old especially, can, can sort of tell you every time I pull off the ring, they kind of like, get ready. You know, dad's going into his illustration, you know. But I hold up my ring, and I say, I say, what is this ring? What's inside of this ring? And they say, mommy and daddy and Jesus. And I say, that's right. I say, and what's in here? What is this? And they say, that's safety. I say, that's right, that's safe. I say, what is out here? And they will sort of get a scowl in their eyes and say, that's danger. That's dangerous. I say, that's right. And what is the most dangerous thing that you can do right now as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old? What's the most dangerous thing you can do right now? And they'll say, disobey mommy and daddy. Disobedience. Really simple. And then here's the, here's the, 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 the theme. Here's the, the thing that they walk away with every time. And I'll ask them, I'll say, and what is mommy and daddy's job? And they'll say, they get a smile on their face every time. Even though they're no, they know consequences are about to come. Right? They get the smile on their face. And they say, your job is to save me from danger. You're to save me from danger. When my kids aren't thinking right, in a moment of anger, in a moment of frustration, and they lash out, and they disobey, and they... Um, they decide not to listen to mommy and daddy. Our job is to rush in and to save them and to remind them that though the consequences now are teeny tiny, right? They seem insignificant, honestly, in some ways. When they get older, the consequences get much more serious, right? The stakes are way higher. And we have prisons filled with folks who never learned that it's dangerous to disobey. That's how God's discipline works. That he is coming to save his people from danger. That he wants, he longs to save you from your sin. Listen to how Hebrews 12 puts it in the New Testament. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen to this, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter that he would receive. That the Lord's discipline is good and necessary because he is loving, because he is seeking and desirous of a relationship with his people that he would discipline, that he would help us to see when we are in danger and rebellion. The Lord here was disciplining Judah, for their sins were many, but doing it out of love. Okay, so God's discipline is good and necessary for those who live by faith in God's promises and his purposes, but what is faith, right? We asked that question at the beginning. What does it look like for you and for me? Well, back to our New Testament reading from Hebrews 10 and 11. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is following God's promises, his word, the Bible, not shrinking back, but following, pursuing, living. Why? And that's the question you may ask yourself. Why would I follow a book that's like 2,000 years old and older? And the answer is, is because we believe. We believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that he uh, will do what he has said he will do. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Only one person holding this whole universe together. And we trust him. And we believe him. And we follow him. There's a helpful image of faith that I found in the first century uh, Roman world. They have these coins that they fashioned with their Latin word for faith, which was fides. And on the coin, to symbolize faith, they have these two hands sort of clasped like this together. And the point is, is that faith is this holding on tight, this trust, this pact, this relationship, right? Where this one goes, this one follows. Hand in hand, walking with the Lord, trusting and relying upon him for the way we should go. And trusting he has a purpose, even when the whole world is turning upside down. In the South, there's this saying that says, um, it's an old saying, one of our mentors used to say it. Um, He said, you know, uh, they say that Heaven and hell is actually separated only by about 18 inches. The 18 inches separate heaven and hell. Have you heard this? He said it's the difference between about here and here. What you believe here and what you believe here. So one of my mentors would tell the story of the guy at Niagara Falls who's a tightrope walker. And he's got the line stretched across the waters and the falls, right? It looks like he's going to die if he, you know, he's going to topple over and fall to his doom. And he gets up and he says, how many of you believe I can walk across this, this, uh, this falls here? And they say, well, everybody, you know, the whole crowd, we believe you can do it. He said, all right. So he does it and he comes on back. Everybody cheers, you know, like it's amazing. He didn't fall over. He's still alive. Yay. And then he says, how many of you believe I can walk this barrel across the canyon and come back across the falls and still not fall in? Everybody's hands go in the air. We believe, yes, you can do it. So he takes the barrel and he goes across the falls and he comes back and it's like amazing, right? I mean, this guy's incredible. And he says, how many of you believe I can put one of you inside this barrel and roll you across the falls, and back safely right now. Again, everybody's hands goes up, we believe you can do it. And so the man looks down at one of the crowd members and says, all right, sir, well, if you'll just step up here and come with me, I'll put you in this barrel. And immediately the guy's hand goes down, right? And the tightrope walker says to him, what happened? I I thought you just saw me do all these things, right? And, And you said you believe, right? Why? What happened? And the man said this. He said, oh, I believe that you can do it. But I don't believe that you can do it. I believe up here. I agree that that would be possible. But I'm not willing to get up there on that rope with you. 
And that is the difference between what the world would say is faith. Oh, just high hopes, you know, positive thinking, like, yes, let's, that sounds good to me. And the difference between the Bible's view of faith, which is get on the tightrope, get on the walk, and follow the Lord to the very end. Okay, so faith is following the Lord, walking with him hand in hand, trusting in him and his promises and his purposes. But you might still have a problem with this idea of discipline. What is discipline, right? For, for Habakkuk, for Judah, it was you know, this uh, terrible enemy nation coming and taking them to the exile. I don't think that's going to happen today or this week for you. But what are the scenarios in our life where God is disciplining us? How does he discipline his people? Well, sure, I think it can totally be said that a catastrophic event in your life could be the thing God is wanting to wake you up with, right? It's the thing he uses to wake you up out of your sin, right? We just said it. We want to trust you when times are difficult, that we would turn back to the Lord. Perhaps this last year for you, was that scenario. Perhaps this last year was a year where you said, what are we living for when everything can vanish in a matter of days? And God does allow those those things, those events, to help bring us back to our senses, to come back to the light of his word. But another key way that God disciplines us and his people is actually through his people, through the church. Um, one of the things that Presbyterians uh, are distinct in is, is that they really do believe that when Christ said, all authority is given now to you, my leaders, that he was giving them authority to not only preach the word and exhort them, but also to discipline, to, to rule, to guide, to help form and shape us in the image of Jesus. Not in some like hierarchical way, like there's a bishop somewhere, some, somehow who's going to like, you know, start handing down judgments on people. No, no, no. But in a local way that me as a pastor, that all of our pastors, that we are accountable and we are disciplined by uh, our fellow regional pastors and that our members here are disciplined by the local uh, leaders and shepherd leaders in this church. So at my ordination exam uh, this past spring, one of the guys in the committee, Craig was there, uh, was that he said, so have you ever been under church discipline, right? And this is a tense situation, you know? And so I'm like, no, I've never been under church discipline, you know? Um, and everyone in the committee sort of like rubbed their eyebrow a little bit, you know? And apparently it was the wrong answer because <laughs> they helped me to see that, no, actually, that's just, you're, you're thinking of the negative side of church discipline. But the positive side of church discipline is every time you come and hear the word preached, every time you come and you're admitted to the Lord's table, every time you are, your faith is validated and says you are in Christ, that that is the positive side of discipline, that we are being formed and patterned and held onto by Christ and his body. Not just negative side, but the positive side as well. And it's only, I think, when we begin to forsake the positive sides of discipline. Like Judah, right? Failing to uphold God's commands, failing to, to obey his love is when we begin to then 
fall into the negative sides, right? We begin to, we begin to require uh, the heavy-handed uh, uh, calls of rebuke. And I've been rebuked a lot as an adult uh, by good, faithful mentors, good, faithful friends. Uh, my wife seems to enjoy it. Um, and and it's, it's painful, right? It's painful, but it's necessary. And it's only when I have failed to walk in the good, positive sides that I fall into the negative side. So, God's discipline is good and necessary for you and for me. Second point, walk by sight. Walk not by sight, right? Not by sight. Not by sight. God's kingdom is invisible and priceless. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of what? Things not seen. The conviction. I'll get in that barrel. You can roll me across. The conviction of things not seen. Do you ever wonder why Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Like, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As a kid, I used to wonder about that all the time, right? Where is God's kingdom? Is it up there? Where is it? As I get older, uh, I began to read more of the Gospels in John 18, where Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Romans 8, 24, now hope that is seen is not hope. There's an invisible component to our hope. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which says, we walk by faith, not by sight, because God's kingdom is invisible. Our hope is not found on this earth in this life, in our families, our houses, our work, our comfort, nowhere. Nowhere on this earth holds the hope of heaven. I don't care how convincing your friends' posts are on social media, they haven't found heaven on earth. It doesn't exist here yet. For Habakkuk, he was looking around and saying, how can this be God's plan, right? He's looking around, he's walking by sight, he's saying, this site is awful, it's terrible. Right? You might have asked yourself, how could a pandemic be a part of the plan? You might have said, how could this person doing this thing against me be a part of the plan? How could so-and-so saying that thing be a part of the plan? But God reminded him, walk by faith. Hold to my word. Keep my promises. Especially, and this is crucial, especially when his purposes are unclear, you hold to his promises in your heart. Don't shirk back and run off with the crowds, but follow the Lord. Well, if the kingdom's invisible, then who can tell if you're truly on the path to reaching it, right? That's a fair question. How do you know if you're on the right path if it's invisible? The path's invisible, you're walking around. How do you know? And the answer lies in his word, which we've read and we've recited and we've sung, and this weekly habit brings us back to the Word, in His Word and in His people. That when you see yourself and, your, and others in the church living out this faith in accordance with the Scriptures in ways that so clearly says, my hope is in the invisible kingdom, you know you're on the right path. Listen again to the New Testament passage we, let, we read this morning. Recall the former days when you were, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. Okay? There were no ministries to those in prison in those days. People in prison died in prison because they didn't provide you with food or shelter or anything. Like, it, you went there to die. But these people had compassion on those in prison when no one else would. 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. And then he goes on. Don't throw away your confidence, right? The righteous shall live by faith, not shirk back. And you might be asking yourself, as I was asking myself, as I was reading that again this week, joyfully accepting the plundering of your property? I don't know about you, but growing up in America, property is kind of a big deal. How could you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? Well, I think part of the key is found actually back in Habakkuk with the problem that the Babylonians had. You know what it says one verse after the righteous shall live by faith? Right? God says this about the Babylonians. He says, moreover, wealth is a traitor. That's interesting. Wealth is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. That's what the love of wealth, money, possession is. Greed. Greed. Not need. Greed. More and more. And that's what led Babylon to destroy nations. They just never had enough. They never had enough. Wanting what's not theirs. Wanting more than what God has provided. It's a big time evil. And that's why greed is listed in 1 Corinthians 6 as one of the characteristics of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. How can you inherit an invisible kingdom when all you want is a visible, material, temporal pleasure, possession, security in this life? How can you want what is coming when all you live for is what's right in front of you? And so the Babylonians fell into the sin, and so God calls them out for it, and so the writer of Hebrews brings in this weird kind of, you gave up your property with joy when you were being persecuted, early church. There's a switch that happens. Do you see it? From plundering and driving and getting more and more and the next promotion and the next thing and the next toy and the next house and that, from accumulating, accumulating, accumulating to now, those who live for God's invisible kingdom, giving it away. It's one of the key characteristics of the early church, right? They were selling fields, they were selling property, they were selling stuff, and they were bringing it to the church leaders and saying, wherever there is a need, right, our hope is not here, our hope is there. Now, I told you, the minor prophets get real, real quick. It gets real uncomfortable real quick. But our joy, our hope, our faith is in the assurance of things hoped for, things that we have not seen and the things to come. I would argue that not living by sight is one of the greatest challenges facing this church or any church in the Western world today. And yet it is essential to not live by sight as the one of, um, as it's essential for living out our faith. It's essential to growing in our godliness. You may not be losing property or possessions for your faith today, this week, right? Um, but are you willing to give it away? That's the question. Are we willing to give it away? Just imagine for a moment, real quick, as we begin to turn a corner here, just imagine for a moment with me what it would look like to live by faith and not by sight. Would you be willing to pass up a promotion because you want your coworker to get it? Would you be willing to 
suffer declining property values in your neighborhood for the love and sake of your neighbors? High schoolers, would you be willing to come alongside that awkward student and give them some of your clothes, uh, give them some of your, your, um, your shoes, your stuff, but just helping them fit in? Would you eat lunch with them at the, at the lunch table when they typically sit alone? Children, kiddos, would you be willing to give up your favorite toy for someone in need? Families, would you be willing up willing to give up a vacation this year so you could help another family take one that might not be able to? Are we willing to adopt? Are we willing to foster? Are we willing to give up a week of PTO for Impact Week? Are we willing to say, Lord, I'll give to CPC in ways beyond I, what I can see right now? The Shepherd Leaders mentioned a few weeks ago that they we hit a financial crisis here, and they said, we're going to all commit 10% more than what we give. I know I'm talking to a really generous church here. I know many of you all are insanely generous, and you live by faith and not by sight. But as a way of reminder, as a way of imagination, I just want to sort of put these things out there of what it could look like if we were living by faith and not by sight. If we so, so love the Lord and wanted to see his kingdom come, that we we're willing to joyfully give away our lives. And that's what Jesus says when he says, lay up for yourselves treasure where? Treasure where? In heaven, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. There it is. God's kingdom is invisible and priceless. Don't walk by sight, walk by faith. Last point. True faith brings assurance in the midst of uncertainty. After Habakkuk has had time to reflect on the first two chapters of his conversation with the Lord, he ends the prophecy by saying this in verses 17 to 19. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. You hear that? God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of violence, in the midst of famine, in the midst of joblessness, Habakkuk is assured of God's love and his faithfulness to all those who would trust him and would follow him would have faith in him. So what about you this morning? On what is your assurance of God's love and faithfulness built right now? Is it the things you can see? Or is it the invisible kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ coming? Where is your assurance found? If God is God then his word is true. If his word is true, then that means he has sent help, a Messiah, a Savior to this world. And it's on his word and on his Savior that all our assurance relies. So in closing, who is it that leads us to walk by faith and not by sight? Who has God sent for us to hold on to in order that we might become children of Abraham, not by birth, but by faith? 
and in whom we would receive an eternal inheritance in God's invisible kingdom. It's Jesus. And Jesus says this in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they believe, that they know you, the only true God, that they know you in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that you know God and that you know Jesus as the Son of God, who he has sent. So do you know God this morning? Do you know Jesus, whom he sent? Jesus says over and over in the scriptures, he's the only way to God. His disciples say over and over, he's the only way to God. He's the only way to walk by faith and not by sight. He's the only way to receive discipline and rejoice and place our hope in the Lord's promises and in his ways. Because only Jesus could atone for us by living the perfect life that we should have lived, by dying the death that each of us should have died in our place. He alone atones for our sins. He alone gives us his spirit. He alone leads us to walk by faith and not by sight, that we would be counted as righteous because he is righteous and he lives in us. That's the offer on the table, the invitation open to you this morning. And there are some prayers in your bulletin that you can see a couple pages over that when we come to this table in a minute, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet, you can read those prayers. You can pray them. Even if you have, read them, pray them. And seek the Lord this morning, believing that he exists and that he rewards all those who seek him in Christ Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel news of Jesus Christ. We praise you. We thank you. May your spirit fall on every heart, fill every soul here who would trust in you. Grant us your faith. Grant us your grace. That we may walk by faith and not by sight. We ask this for your glory, for our good, the salvation of our neighbors and the nations. Amen.